0: All right, church, please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to continue working through this uh, fantastic book, incredibly relevant, um, as all the Bible is, but in particular, in the things we see going on in our culture, this book just seems to be speaking a lot of truth to a lot of things happening in our world. As you're turning there, I want to tell you one of my wife's least favorite words to hear come out of my mouth. I bet she could guess it right now, but I'm not gonna put her on the spot. It's the word, Gabriel thinks he knows it, I don't think he does. No, not shoot a monkey. No, that's not it. That's my son, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the least favorite word that she will hear me say, and she tells me every time, is the word relative. She says, I hate that word. Now, I'm not talking about family relatives. I'm sure many of you were like, yeah, I hate my relatives too. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the word relative as opposed to objective. Something that's kind of, it relates to something versus something that's just, I mean, true. It's just true, okay? So, um, uh, an easy example of this would be, oh, well, that's good. Okay, Well, but what does that mean? Like, good compared to what? It could be good compared to chocolate pudding cake. That means it's got to be heavenly, like food of the gods type of good. But then if I say, oh, well, that's good, like when Stacey makes broccoli with cheese and stuff, broccoli is nasty. But I will eat it and say, oh, that's really good. I don't mean this is good like chocolate pudding cake good. I mean this is good compared to like raw broccoli, okay? Raw broccoli, ugh. cheese and melted stuff and lemon, okay, we can do that. That's good. So that's kind of relative. That's an example here. Well, today in our, in our passage, we're going to come across this word, traditions. The word tradition is also relative. That is to say, how old or how widespread must something be in order for it to be traditional? For an example, in the church, we use it to describe a worship service, a traditional worship service. We went to Shreveport this weekend. There were some churches that they had contemporary worship service this time. Uh, traditional worship service this time, celebration worship service was one of them, now I'm starting to see this word modern, the modern worship service. Well, all of these are kind of relative, but we're going to look at traditional. How old or how long does something need to be practiced before it's traditional? Traditional to what period? It's a traditional service because we've done it for 25 years. It's a traditional service because that's how it's been done for a century. It's traditional because that's how it was done in the Protestant Reformation. It's traditional because that's how the early church did it. Well, technically, those are the oldest forms, but we don't look at that and say, well, that's traditional. Though technically, that is traditional. So what does it mean? Or traditional to who? Traditional to our church here in Gina, Louisiana. Traditional to churches in Louisiana, period. Maybe traditional to churches in America. That's how churches in our country traditionally worship. Or maybe traditional to around the world. It's traditional to all churches. What, what does that mean? It's really hard to say. Or consider tradition in the church just in general. It doesn't have to be a worship service. Maybe it's the way that you've done something. You might hear and probably have. Well, it's always been done this way. We've always done that. Again, what time frame? Always since the church was founded? Or always since you've been a member? Or always... For the past five years or 20 years, it's all relative. When we start to ask these questions, what we will discover is that many of us use the word tradition to describe something different. We all have an idea in our mind of what tradition is. We see it in our families, we have different traditions, we see it in the church. Well, when we start to ask these types of questions about what tradition is, what it means, what we will sometimes discover is that tradition is often a stand-in for what I'm used to. It's what I'm familiar with. It's what I like. But growth in the church demands that we take time to evaluate why we do what we do. And this is hard, because we don't like change. I don't like change. So here's the main idea this morning, and then we'll start to look at our passage this morning and talking about tradition, and hopefully some of these ideas will come together. Here's the main idea. Christians need good reasons behind why they do what they do. Christians need good reasons behind why they do what they do. We're going to look this morning at a traditional practice in the early church that is going to seem foreign to us. We're going to say, Well, obviously we shouldn't do that. Well, why not? It's traditional. And we're gonna to start to ask some of these questions. Should we, should we not? Why should we? Why should we not? We'll look at that this morning. So to give you a little bit of context before we read our passage, hopefully you're almost there. First Corinthians eleven. We have been excuse me, we've been going through several topics in the book of First Corinthians. We are now in the seventh topic, traditions in the church. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word. I will read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. This is just a reminder that we are about to submit ourselves to the holy word of God. 1 Corinthians 11, I'll start in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember in me everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven." That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you to divinely open your word to us today. To give us depth of understanding and insight and meaning that we might be faithful interpreters of your word, that we might be faithful appliers of your word. Help us to understand so that we might be faithful doers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So our next topic in the letter, traditions, you'll see it kind of begin in verse 2 of chapter 11, And it starts with this phrase, now I commend you. I want you to skip forward to verse 17. We'll start that next time, Lord willing. It says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So we have this section on traditions, and we have a commendation, and then we have somewhere where Paul does not commend their practice. One is a positive use of tradition. The other one is a negative take on tradition. This week, we're going to look at the positive. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions. Now, this might sound strange because in church life especially, we hear tradition like, oh, that's just a tradition. And we kind of have a negative connotation. Okay, like, oh, that that can't be good because it's just an old thing. We don't even know why we do it anymore. It's not good. But what we see here in the Bible is that tradition can be a good thing. He is commending them that they maintain the traditions. But the Bible doesn't commend all tradition. In Matthew chapter 15, the Pharisees ask Jesus why the disciples don't wash their hands before eating. They say, why don't they follow the tradition of the elders, is what, he, uh, is what they refer to it as. And they ask, why do your disciples break the tradition? Why don't they wash their hands before eating? And Jesus fires back, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? So it gets heated real quick. And Jesus gives an example. He says, Let me tell you. The commandment says, honor your father and mother, but you have a tradition that if your mother that if your mother or father asks for something, you can say, Well, that's Corbin. It's I've I've set aside this as a gift to God. And I must worship God and not you. So I cannot help you right now. Well, that seems honorable. I've set aside something for God. This is dedicated to God. I'm going to give it to God. Wonderful. But Jesus says, you have a funny way of using your traditions to break God's commandments. My parents are in need. Oh, what am I going to do? I'll tell you what. I'll just make this dedicated to God, and then I don't have to help them out. So the tradition was being used to break God's command. And Jesus makes their condemnation clear in verse 6. He says, so, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So we're going to go ahead and get our first point out of the way this morning as we unpack that. Number one, good tradition aids orthodoxy. Bad tradition invites idolatry. Good tradition aids orthodoxy, bad tradition invites idolatry. Tradition can be good when it helps us to keep and understand better the Word of God. There are certain traditions that help to reinforce the things that we see in here, but then there are certain times that we use traditions, maybe not even intentionally or knowingly, but we use traditions in a way that we actually end up violating or hindering the ministry of the word of God. Paul says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. What made the traditions worthy of maintaining wasn't that it sounded good and pragmatic in the moment. It's that Paul delivered it to them. They said, well, this is what Paul taught. We, We need to do this. We must do this. It will keep us in line with Christianity if we continue to practice this. It will give us this right belief and enable us to rightly worship. It will help aid orthodoxy. But there comes a time when tradition loses its value and can even become more of a hindrance than a help. And when it comes to that point, we need to be ready and willing to recognize that so that we can evaluate, adjust, and sometimes even depart from practices that are no longer serving their intended purpose. Look at verse 16 in our passage. We're going to go to the end because it kind of hits on the same point. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, he's talking about with this tradition that we just looked at, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. So as a general rule of thumb, when it comes to tradition, the more recent or isolated a tradition is, the less protective of it we should be. If it's something that has not been around long, and it's something that hasn't been widespread, that's not to say that it's necessarily bad, but it means that we shouldn't be necessarily willing to die on that hill to defend that tradition. Likewise, the longer and more widespread a tradition is, the more protective of it we should be. If it's something that the church has been doing in a wide area, the church around the globe for hundreds of years has done this. We should be real careful before we just say, ah, but I don't understand it, let's just get rid of it. We should be real careful about that. It's probably been done by that many people for such a long time for a reason. Probably, not necessarily, but probably been done for a really good reason. And that good reason probably still exists. Not necessarily, but probably. But there are some traditions that we fight tooth and nail to protect regardless of any of these things. And this reveals when tradition can start to become an idol. If the only answer behind why we do something is that's what we've always done, and you become militant about protecting it, make no mistake, it is an idol. It has become an idol. There should be a reason behind why we do what we do. And I'm going to give you two of the best reasons. Number one, because the Bible says it. In verse two, Paul commends them for following the tradition that he passed down. And he uses this phrase, I commend you because you remember me in everything. The idea is that they come to a situation, that say, okay, well, what, what is what are we supposed to do here? Well, what, does, what did Paul say? What's some of the things Paul was saying to us? Well, he said that God is like this, and he said that the church should act like this, and Christians should do this. They don't have a New Testament for them to look at. All they have is what Paul said. Well, we have the apostolic teaching right here. We have the divine word of God. So the way that we can emulate what they are doing is by saying, okay, well, what should we do here? Well, what does the Bible say? I mean, what do we see in here? We're flipping through pages. We want to remember the Bible in everything. This is how we should treat the scriptures. What does the Bible tell me that will help me to think or act rightly in this moment? In doing this, we are maintaining the traditions of the apostles. Think about that. We have traditions from the apostles stored in the scriptures for us. Now, the next best reason should be because it helps reinforce what the Bible says. There are some things, we're going to see that in our practice today, that the Bible doesn't give it as an explicit command, but it reinforces what the Bible teaches, And that is a great reason for continuing with a tradition. So that's what we're going to look at now, starting in verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. He starts with this phrase, I want you to understand. This is what we just saw. There should be a reason why we do what we do. Paul commends them for their obedience, but he wants them to understand their obedience. So the way that I'm seeing this, and there are some who disagree, that's okay. The way that I'm seeing this is the practice Paul is describing now is not something that they are breaking. They must have had a question about this. So Paul answers it in his letter. He says, now, this is something I commend you in. You're doing this. That's great. But I want you to understand why it is that this is great. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Quick side note here for parents. As annoying as it is when our kids ask the question why, we should not be so quick to dismiss their inquiry. I know it's annoying, okay? My son entered this phase uh, I say relatively recently, it kind of comes and goes, where he'll ask why, 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 and then we'll have to take a break from asking that question. <laughs> Admittedly, it happens. But I do at least listen to what he is asking why about. This is especially important when it comes to obedience. I am so tempted, it's so easy, Dad, why do we have to do this? It's so easy to just say, because I said we have to do this. That is technically the right answer. God has put me in charge of my family. That's the correct answer. There's more than one reason, though. And parents understand this. Sometimes there's a multitude of reasons why we have instructions in place. If they don't know why they're supposed to act a certain way, they will only act that way as long as they are under my thumb. But when they get out from under my thumb, do you know what they're going to do? What makes sense in their mind? And if I haven't built a foundation in their mind to help them comprehend this is why these things are bad, they will reject that when they get to college. And they're met with a marvelous array of ideas. They will abandon that. They need a foundation to understand why we do what we do. So as annoying as it is sometimes to give an instruction to my kids and then to hear the question, why? I try as often as possible to explain, well, here's why. Now, whether or not you agree with this, we can talk about it, but this is how it will go. And here's why. They usually understand, usually. There's something we don't want our kids to do, There will be some times that because I said so is the right answer, but I think it's less often than we think it is. They need to know why lying is wrong. They need to know why we don't use God's name in vain. They need to know why church is important. They need to know why gender is not fluid. They need to know why it's good to protect those who cannot defend themselves. They need to know why it's good to live sacrificially. In a time where the world wants us to ask why, less and less, we should be a voice in the wilderness that stands up to answer that question with the truth. We have the answer why to a lot of questions the world does not have an answer to. We shouldn't want blind obedience from our children, because one day that blind obedience may change allegiance. And they will be blindly obedient to a false ideology. And they will not be open to reason. We see it in our culture. There is an opposition to reason because we've been taught blind obedience. Well, now I see something I can blindly be obedient to that gives me what I want. We should want thoughtful obedience. And that's what we see Paul doing here. I commend you that you keep the tradition I want you to understand and then he gives the foundation for his for what he's um, describing here in this practice. And this description is three relationships. This is the key to understanding this whole section. There are three relationships in view. And they are all framed with the word head. I think that's a play on words. The word head here is kind of like the, um, the point of origin, sort of. Not quite like um, the head of a river and then all the water flows from that. But it's more of an authoritative, I am in charge over. There's a relationship of authority and submission. So the head of someone is someone who is giving authority and then the other is submitting to that authority. That's what the word head means a lot of times as we see it in Scripture, not referring to a physical head. But Paul does talk about a physical head in just a moment. So the three relationships here, you can look in verse 3. Number one, every man submits to Christ. Number two, the wife submits to the husband. Number three, God the Son submits to God the Father. And the way that Paul frames these relationships helps us to see and understand submission and authority from a good, healthy perspective. Biblical submission in marriage does not teach inferiority, but equality. I want you to look at something interesting here. He says the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now Christ is Jesus. Jesus is God the Son. God here is a reference to God the Father. So the Son lives in submission to the Father. Well, the Son and the Father are equal in value. They are equal in essence. Neither of them is less God. Neither of them is less divine. Neither is less valuable. They are simply functioning differently. And I want you to notice, it has nothing to do with their ability. Anything the son can do, the father can do. Anything the father can do, the son can do. But they have specific roles that they are fulfilling within the relationship of the Godhead. They are both fully God and fully capable of doing what the other can. They are equal in essence and value, and they are complementary in function. Such is biblical submission in marriage. Husbands and wives are equal in essence and value, while being complementary in function. Man or woman is not more or less valuable than the other, and Paul's going to make that point in just a moment. Now, what does this have to do with how the church prayed? Well, the whole church gathered together to pray, both men and women, because that first relationship says the head of every man is Christ. That is all mankind, men and women. Don't miss this. One of the ways that women led in the church was through prayer. You see this here. Every man who prays or prophesies... And then verse 5, but every wife who prays and prophesies. The implication is, they're both praying and prophesying in the church. Women are involved in the leadership of the church to some degree. Now Southern Baptists recognize that the office of pastor is reserved for men as qualified by Scripture. It's a historic Baptist teaching that we hold to. It's become really contentious today. The Southern Baptist Convention just recently met and this issue came up and Southern Baptists stood overwhelmingly on this foundation. But what this does not mean is that Southern Baptists think women should just sit down and be quiet in the life of the church that they should not be involved in some teaching roles in prayer in the service of the church. We need women, and actually it's to our condemnation that typically women will do this more than men. Serving and praying. I have heard several people, and and label several people in my life as prayer warriors. Overwhelmingly, it's women. Isn't that interesting? Praise God for godly women who labor in prayer. Men, where are we at? Maybe this is the competitive nature inside of me stirring up. We can be prayer warriors too. Both men and women step up and lead in the church, even if sometimes it looks slightly different in some times or places. So that's the first thing we see here as it relates. all prayed, men and women. However, we see in verse 4, That how one prays can dishonor one's head, not talking about this thing, talking about the relationship that he just mentioned in verse 3. Why does men praying with their physical head covered dishonor their relational head to God the Father? So when he's talking about a head covering, he's not talking about like a jacket and a hood that he's got pulled over. That's not what they're talking about. It's this cloth that you would wear kind of over and around your head. If you look at like the old Jesus stories, or they call them like Jesus tapes, and you see Jesus walking around with a covering, kind of similar to that a little bit. Or if you remember, Raju and Leela came, and maybe when she came into the church, at some point, she may have had a head covering. When I sat down to pray with them in the hotel room, she went over and got her head covering and came back and sat down and wrapped it kind of around her head, covering her face. Not entirely, I could still see her face, but it just kind of was hanging down like this. I think probably related to this passage. That's what he's talking about here. So why does men doing that dishonor their relational head? Well, priests in some of these other religions that existed at the time would cover their heads in this ornate, intricate covering when they stood up to pray as a way to exalt themselves as the priest of a temple, or one who is offering worship to their god, or even worse, someone that their false god has chosen to be their representative. So now imagine if someone from that background comes into the church and they see a man stand up with his head covering on, this symbol of pride and authority standing up in front of everyone you can see the temptation of people to say oh that's the special man of God he's more special than the other people we do this in our church today that's the guy with the coat on he's the special man of God the preacher if we really want something done he needs to pray for it I will gladly pray for you anytime but guess what you have just as much access to God as I do You have just as much access as I do. I will happily pray for you. You can pray too. We didn't want to send this mixed picture that in the church, this man stood up, he's got this covering. That would dishonor God because it is drawing attention away from God onto this man. Now there's more than one reason for this, but in that text, that is the reason that we see men praying and robbing God of honor. For women, though, the situation is different. If a woman were to stand up and do that, it would be communicating something totally different. Women wore a veil-like cloth over their head as a way to indicate that she was married. She belonged to another man. So pulling that veil off indicates I'm available. We have a similar practice today. It's right here on my hand. My wife's got one also. There are couples sometimes that wish to communicate, even though they're not. They wish to communicate, I'm available. So what do they do? They take this off and put it away in a drawer to communicate, I'm available. That's what this is. For a woman to remove that veil and to pray in public would communicate in the church, whoa, well, what's happening here. We don't want to miscommunicate something. So she is dishonoring her head, the husband, excuse me, the husband by removing her veil. And it would have been confusing. There's another practice in the culture there that when a woman was caught in the act of adultery, she would have to shave off or someone else would shave off her hair or cut it short as a way to shame her because of the act. So that's what you see Paul referencing here. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, her husband, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. It's shameful. It's communicating something about that relationship that's not good. So women, you wouldn't shave your head when you come into the church, so then why are you taking your veil off, your covering off? Look at what you're communicating. Now this is just one reason that Paul gives This is a cultural reason. It's tied to this culture. We don't do the veil thing today. We don't do that. This is kind of our cultural practice, and it's really weird if you think about it. When you're married, you put a piece of metal around your finger. Women have a big rock on their piece of metal. Kind of strange, isn't it? That's what we do. That's what they did. It's a cultural practice. However, Paul continues, as he goes into verse 7, and he gives a reason from creation. In verse 7, Paul says that man is the glory of God while woman is the glory of man. This does not mean that woman is not made in the image of God or the glory of God. That's not what he's communicating here. Remember, he's talking about the issue of honor and dishonor. So what this phrase means is that man honors God through how he prays with this practice just as the woman honors the man in how she prays to God in her practice. That's the whole point that he's trying to communicate here. They're both having to practice the same thing, prayer, but in two different ways so that they make sure they honor the relationships that need to be honored. That's the reason why Paul points to creation. Woman came from man and was made for man. So man is the head of woman, not inferiority, but equality, equal in essence and value, though complementary in function. And he even makes it clear in verse 11, if it's not clear, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. The difference in praying simply ties back to authority, submission, and honor. Now, this kind of leads us to our second point this morning. Christians ought to embrace and uphold the biological differences between men and women. Christians ought to embrace and uphold the biological differences between men and women. Paul is encouraging them to pray differently according to their gender simply because of the confusing message it might communicate to the surrounding culture. It's really interesting. He wants to make sure someone doesn't come in and see the way that you're doing this and think you're saying something you're not really trying to say. And if they walk away with that understanding, what he's implying here is that you have probably done something wrong. You were aware of this, and you didn't make an adjustment in light of it. Every culture has a way to distinguish between men and women. Well, in the church, the distinctions between men and women should be clear and not confusing. We see this reiterated in the Old Testament multiple times. God condemns the confusion of gender. Men who dress or try to look like women, or vice versa, Verse 10 just flat out says that women ought to cover their heads as a sign of authority because of the angels. In essence, there are people who are looking in, and you don't want to confuse them. Now, the word angels there I'll I'll address, it's either referring to heavenly beings or messengers. I'm inclined to think it's messengers. Some would disagree with me. They would say, well, no, it's heavenly beings. Grammatically, that word means both of those things. So context determines what it means, and it's just not clear. Either way, whether it's a heavenly being or a messenger to the church, someone is looking in from the outside and they're seeing something and they ought not to be confused by what they see. Perception matters. Now, these distinctions might look very different in different cultures. But what should not be different is that men look and act like men while women look and act like women. Put simply, Cultural practice can kind of be fluid, but the creation principles are not. We are men and women. The word gender is derived from the word for kind. There are two kinds of people, men and women. That should be clear. Even the way we celebrate these things, even when they are different, we ought to celebrate and uphold them. So Paul points to creation one more time in verse 14. He says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So again, by nature, women and men are different, and those differences ought to be reflected in the culture where we live and in the church. So in all of this, and this is a big point here, Paul's point is that tradition should take into account what might be communicated to the surrounding culture. If something might be miscommunicated, your tradition needs to change while not violating biblical principles. This is huge. What we typically look at in whether or not to keep tradition is whether or not I like it. That is not the ultimate reason to keep a tradition. The ultimate reason to keep a tradition is that it will help clearly communicate to the culture surrounding us what God is like, what he's said, and what he's done. That's why we keep traditions. If something begins to suggest the opposite, it is up to us to recognize and evaluate and potentially change our traditions without compromising biblical teaching. So here's the final point, number three. Obedience includes what is done, why it's done, and how it's done. So looking back over this passage and describing this practice He communicates what needs to happen. They need to pray. He tells them how they should pray. It looks different. And then he explains why it looks different. Many times we have things that we do, that's the what, and a way that we do it, that's the how, but the reason that we do it that way no longer applies. A quick analogy of this. There's a story where this girl learns from her mother how to make, I think it's like a pot roast or something to that effect, and she cuts it in half and cooks it in two different pans in the oven and stacks them in there and, and cooks them that way. So then the girl grows up always cooking it that way. She has a little girl. She begins to cook, and she teaches her little girl, cut the roast in half, put it in two pans, put it in the oven, cook it, whatever. And the girl grows up, and she begins to teach her daughter this. So now we're a few generations down, and, and the daughter says, well, Mom, why do we do it this way? She's like, well, this is how my mom did it. Well, why does she do it that way? That's how mom, her mom did it. Well, why does she do it that way? She's like, well, I don't know. Stop asking why. There's the question. Okay, so she puts it in there. Well, then she begins to think, why do we do it this way? So she went and asked her mom. Well, I don't know. That's how mom always did it. So she went and asked her grandmother. Grammy, why do we do it this way? Well, my oven was too small for the pan, so I cut it in half and put it on two pans so I could fit it in better. (laughs) That makes sense for you. My oven's big enough. I'm going to keep it whole, right? You see the point. Sometimes we can get so ingrained in doing something because that's why it's always been done, and now the reason is gone. And actually, you'll retain more of the flavor if you don't cut that thing in half. There's a good reason why that ought to be changed. How should always be willing to submit to why? The method should reflect a reason. This is what makes Jesus's obedience so perfect and our obedience so insufficient. Think about this. We are really good at doing the right things for the wrong reasons and calling it obedience. I read my Bible today. I was obedient. Glad I'm done with that. That was terrible. Well, I did my good deed. I gave some money to this person. I know they're going to blow it anyway, but whatever. Well, I went to church. Check. Don't have to go for another three months by my count. I mean, I could just keep going. I'm condemning myself on many of these. It is so easy to just want to know what the right thing is to do, and you don't really care why it's the right thing. It reveals that we might be doing it for the wrong reasons. This is what the Pharisees did. They had external obedience, but the internal aspect was lacking. In Matthew 15, we looked at it earlier. Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13. That passage says this. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. So they're saying the right things. God, you're holy and you're great. But you know what their heart was communicating? You're not holy and great. I don't like you, but I really want to go to heaven, so I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I really want your blessings, God. I want to be a part of the national blessing of Israel, so I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Their hearts are far from me. They're saying the right things, but their heart makes their obedience disobedience. I'm going to read one more example of this. It's fleshed out a little more fully. Isaiah 58. Listen to verses 2 and 3. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. He quotes Israel in verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Here's God's response. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. It's not real fasting and I can see it. I'm the God who sees into the heart. When all of David's sons were lined up, he looks like a king, he looks like a king, he looks like a king. None of those were kings. David was the king. The weak, scrawny boy. Because God saw something inside of David that was different. We fast and we sing and we read our Bibles and we do Christian things. And we think, look how Christian I am. And God is looking at us and like, you ain't a Christian. I know you. Now you may can pull the wool over every eye in this building. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. He sees in a way that we don't. Jesus' obedience was perfect. But our obedience is not always like that. On Judgment Day, there are going to be many people who think, I've been obedient. I've done many of the right things, and maybe they have, but they don't realize that their hearts, being far from God, have polluted every good work. Isaiah 64, 6 refers to righteous deeds that are polluted, a polluted garment. They practice biblical morality, but it's just to be a good person or a good citizen. They do good to others so that at the right time, other people will do good to them. They pray to God, but just to make their own lives better. They go to church, but just to make a family member happy. Why matters? It matters. The only good reason for any of these things is simply this. I want to follow Jesus. Why do you do that? Because I want to follow Jesus. I see this in the Bible. I see Jesus is like this. I want to follow him. I want to do it. Well, why do you do it this way? Well, it doesn't tell me how, and I think this is maybe how I should do it. I'm open to something different. If it helps me follow Jesus better. Church, let us care about our traditions that matter. Let us be willing to part with or adjust our traditions that don't matter. And let us be careful about our obedience, how we obey, why we obey, so that God receives glory in the attention, not us. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that you are a creative God. That when you made man, you didn't just make one. You saw that that was not good. But you made two kinds. You made two genders. Equal in essence and in value. Complementary in function. Thank you for your creativity and your goodness. Lord, please help us to be able to embrace and defend, and protect, and honor, and exalt the creation distinctions that you have given us. To be able to honor the ways that you have made us different. Help us to be faithful in that. If there is anything that we see the culture practicing that violates those principles, Lord, as the culture seeks to erase these distinctions and blur these distinctions, Lord, may you make us into a sanctuary that upholds and defends those distinctions, showing that the way that you have made men and women differently is beautiful and perfect. Lord, give us wisdom as we look at our traditions in the church, in our Christian lives, even practically at work, the patterns and habits that we fall into, help us to be a people that honors and respects you by how we practice what we practice. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to live in perfect obedience where we fall short so that we might be forgiven when we turn to you and confess our sin and repent and turn and trust you in faith. Lord, if there is a soul in this room today as you peer into the hearts of men and women that has not genuinely turned to you to be freed from the bondage of their sin and to be forgiven. I pray that you would so work and speak to that heart that it opens wide to receive your word, that that individual might today choose to turn and trust you in faith. Lord, thank you for saving us, your people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.